To make it in cannabis, first you must dare to. 12 years ago, MJ BizCon dared to unite the global cannabis community, igniting a movement that continues to thrive. The wait is over. Let's grow together this November 28th through December 1st in Vegas. You'll hear incredible stories, see groundbreaking innovations, and forge connections you need to thrive in 2024. But wait, the clock is ticking. Get your tickets by September 28th and save up to $200. And here's a secret. Podcast listeners get 10% off with promo code 23POD10. Don't miss out. Get your tickets at mjbizcon.com. That's mjbizcon.com. It's only entertainment. Welcome back to The Talking Hedge. I'm Josh Kincaid, Capital Markets Analyst and host of your Cannabis Business Podcast. With me today is Morgan Paxi, is the founding partner and chief investor at Poseidon Asset Management. Morgan, thanks again for being back with us at The Talking Hedge. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. Um, let's talk, I wanna talk about Poseidon. I wanna talk about some things that you're getting involved with, but first things first, um, maybe take a step back, I guess, and get a little bit granular on on what a private equity fund is. You have Poseidon funds one and two, and they're closed. Can you kind of explain um, the foundation and how that works? Um, you have a, you have a couple of closed funds; they've been doing well. What's the process around those funds? How or why do they close? Can you kind of just go into brief general context of how it works? Sure. So when you're setting up a fund, um, there's a couple of decisions that you need to make. Um, you know, the type of investor base you're going uh, going after, um, how many investors, how long, like what what are the kind of the framework of the investment vehicle you're you're looking to uh, achieve, and then from there you can kind of back into the different types of structures. So our first fund was actually set up as a hedge fund, um, and that's but it's it's a in the SEC regulatory world, it's known as a 3C1 hedge fund. So there's 3C1 and 3C7. Those are just coding for what kind of investors you have. And so we chose a 3C1. It does limit you to 99 investors. Um, so even though it is a hedge fund, we are at our limit with that as far as our number of investors go. So any anyone that knew that would want to come in would you know, take somebody out that would want to leave and then they could come in and, and do, you know, they could add more or do whatever they want. Uh, because it is a hedge fund is more of an open-ended structure. Um, and that was by design because if you try to think about where we were back in 2013 when we formed this, um, our thesis was having as much flexibility as we could with um, investment mandate, um, all focused on cannabis, but investment mandate, ability to raise capital. We had no idea what it would be like trying to raise and deploy. Um, and so a hedge fund structure fit very nicely for that purpose. And it, and it still runs today. Our second fund was much more of a traditional, if you just Google venture capital fund, um, very, very traditional in that perspective where we have a set period that we can raise the money, a set period we can deploy the money, and then the set period when you're supposed to harvest and return the capital. And that's it. And so during that raising time, you you know, as much as you want to raise is, you know, you put out a target of however much when you're soliciting the investors. And, and then we did again do a 3C1 um, and just... But real quick, um, 3C1 versus 3C7. 3C1 is basically for like high net worth individuals and up versus a 3C7 is more like institutional or at a minimum like a family office, like millions of dollars, millions and millions on up. And we just thought from the cannabis world, you know, we'd have a broader 
prospecting base uh, going with a 3C1 structure. It limits, it's a, it's a lower number of investors you can have. It's completely inverted from that perspective. Like it doesn't, as it makes no sense at all, right? If you think, you know, if you're targeting a, a pool that can put less dollars to work, when you think you should have a larger number of investors that you can have, but you know, it, it's no surprise that regulations um, don't make sense at, uh, you know, all the time. Mm -hmm. When you first, your first um, fund, I saw that there was a couple of Canadian um, uh, grows in there, some producers and looking at your latest round, it looks like there's more software. Is is that a fair assessment that initially you were kind of just going with what was available and now you're maybe targeting what, what you want being in the San Francisco area? You're, you see a lot of software and maybe you're more comfortable with that or is it the environment and it's a race to the bottom in pricing? What is it about like the last half a decade or whatever in the industry that's um, causing that shift or change in your investment preferences? Sure. You know, cannabis is still very early in its life. Um, you know, it's amazing to think saying that being at this, you know, since 2013, I mean, we're nine, you know, nine years into this. I, I think we're almost at the nine year anniversary when Poseidon was formed as a Delaware entity. Um, but because uh, it was right around when the government shut down that's that summer um, was right when we we're trying to get our EIN. Um, but the the landscape has changed many times over and so when we were first investing fund one um we were doing a lot of different things but we were early in canada canada had just become federally legal um so we thought that was a really interesting time uh, especially at that time when no one had any idea about about what this all meant um, so you could actually buy things at relatively reasonable prices up there um and this was before things went totally bananas and you know massive overcapacity and all these kind of issues that they subsequently had so we sold out all of, all of that um years ago and moved that into u.s operators that were looking to be much different from a regulatory perspective um before the term msos uh were such a common uh you know acronym in our space um, we were investing in these companies that were emerging like that like gtis of the world um, so, you know, we've moved around a lot. Software was always an area of interest to us because, um, uh, you know, we just saw an industry that is so challenged from a regulatory dynamic that a lot of existing softwares um, wouldn't necessarily fit square peg and round hole kind of situation. Or the uh, these other like ERP external systems wouldn't even sell to the cannabis industry. So it, it really created an opportunity for ground up. Um, you know, we were very, very early in fund one, we were very early in uh, FlowHub. We were like the, we were the first money into FlowHub um, back in the day. And, you know, that's a big uh, point of sale uh, software company in our space. Um, so we've always tried to look and we were, you know, the early money the original money in headset. Um, so we've certainly been early with some of the, the tech plays in our space, but we've done both. We've always liked to have uh, exposure to both parts of the space, you know, when I say both parts, I mean, plant touching is like a whole vertical that you can dive into and then kind of the, the ancillary services, which can be software and, you know, these other devices and all these other areas, but we, we kind of split them in two and, and like to have exposure to both of those. And that's something we've done across all of our, our strategies over time. How do you get involved with companies? I would imagine um, in the beginning, maybe you went to pitch competitions or you saw something. Um, you probably get a lot of, of decks emailed to you. Word of mouth, I would imagine, is is probably high on, on your priority list. Um, 
How is the deal flow now compared to to when it was? I would imagine you're seeing a lot less deal flow now, or at least a lot more, a lot less interesting things. <laughs> uh, and how are you getting that deal flow? How are you staying involved? How are you keeping your finger on the pulse of the industry? You know, early on, Emily used to cold call companies. She would actually pick up the phone and call and say, "Hey, are you looking for money?" <laughs> wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Um, so that's, you know, early days, that's how we had to um, get going. It was just research online, uh, going to conferences. We went to every single event that we possibly could. Um, we always tried to be active as far as speaking as well and just trying to create a name for ourselves, um, you know, trying to get Poseidon on the map as an investment firm in cannabis. Um, and we still do that today. You know, uh, our team, you know, is gotten a lot bigger, but, you know, we certainly have uh, team members and, uh, you know, that are active as often as we can, because there still is opportunity to continue to build the Poseidon name as an investment firm. Um, so, you know, that certainly helps um, because then people see us and then and then they reach out. Um, but we're also very active with our companies. We sit on a lot of boards. Um, so within our board work, uh, you get to see a lot of who they're doing business with, like who are good partners of these companies. And then we can peel back the onion and, you know, talk to them, reach out, build relationships. It's always about relationships, right? It's about your your name brand as an investor and your relationships. Um, we also get it from co-investors. We get it from um, service providers, um, you know, especially if they know, you know, the type of strategy we're raising and deploying. Um, but, you know, so it's just always being engaged with companies and with the industry is, uh, is really what it's all about. Um, it helps from all aspects, from staying in front of the deal flow, uh, to, you know, being a part of uh, capital opportunities, you know, from an investor's perspective. Um, you know, it's it's really interesting in that, you you know, from our perspective, we just try to be ahead um, of it as much as we can um, because you would think after some very punishing periods uh, from a capital markets perspective that people would be much more sober about valuations but we still see things today, even after all we've been through, that make no sense. They are nonsensical. They'll these investors will see no return or are high, highly likely that they lose money because they just don't know what they're doing, mm. and they just take what is offered to them and thinking this is going to be great, and then they they get disappointed and then they blame the industry for it. And it's it's not the industry, you know. It's and so that's so that's why we just try to be ahead of it as much as we can and talking and building relationships with companies. So that when they are looking for capital, we try to set them up for success. You know, right? It's like getting those initial rounds in in good position, getting good investors, getting good governance helps on subsequent rounds, helps with legitimizing, and you know, it just puts them in a in a good path. But when they start off on a bad path, correcting can be very challenging. So yeah, so it's it's a lot of work to be as much ahead of the curve as you can be. And you know, it's most of the time it's that's not the case. But every now and then it happens and, and that works out very well. I want to follow up with uh with valuations, but but first I kind of want to dive into the mastermind, the Poseidon mastermind. Um, you know, you guys used to have to cold call to get investment, and now you're you're opening up this platform and asking people to apply. So this this Poseidon mastermind, the collaborative program for cannabis founders. So you guys designed this spark collaboration to boost growth. Um to offer access to networks, key trends, peer-to-peer -peer support. Is this an accelerator type program or what, what exactly 
is it compared to? Like, how'd you come yeah. up with it? Well, so, you know, we have a lot of different companies that we're working with. Um, we have new companies, right? We're actively deploying capital. Um, there will be some good press releases hopefully coming out um, this summer about some of the activity we've been up to. And so we have this huge network uh, of companies and some of the biggest challenges in, a, in an emerging industry and, and probably just generally is there's just a lot of friction and friction, um, you know, for building relationships, getting partnerships, you know, if these are software companies getting connected, if these are vertically integrated operators, it's, you know, potentially sourcing good uh, components for their businesses. Um, mm -hmm. So they're not going through this cycle of bad CapEx deployment only to then have it sit in a corner getting dusty or, you know, having to throw a bunch of stuff out because it was, it was no good. Uh, you know, so it's trying to create more um, of a cohesive environment around all of the activity that we have, going on at Poseidon. Every year we do investor days. I'm really excited for our investor day this fall. Um, we're working on something pretty pretty neat on the East Coast. Um, but, you know, when we bring all these CEOs in and, you know, talking with our investors, um, every single time, uh, some of the CEOs are like, oh, I had no idea you guys were involved in that company. Yeah. You know, and it's like every, we've been hearing this now for eight, nine years. So, you know, Patrick, uh, uh, Patrick Ray, who's uh, part of Poseidon now, uh, one of the partners, um, you know, he was the founder of Canopy Boulder. Uh, no, and and so that was an accelerator. But so it's not what we're trying to do with Poseidon, not an accelerator. This is just trying to create a more um, beneficial network where there's some structure around it. Um, and so it's not mm -hmm. such a, an ad hoc kind of situation. Mm -hmm. I was in uh, San Francisco recently for a financial innovation conference called Finnovate. Um, mm -hmm. And I met a company called uh, Plug and Play. Very similar. They have this ecosystem where you can kind of come in. They have the opportunity for investment. So it's kind of, um, you know, a fund, but then it's sort of like an accelerator or incubator because of the ecosystem, not because of the way that it's formed, but because of the way that it is. So they don't they didn't create it. It just formed organically. And the folks that are involved in that company naturally just kind of network and help one another out. And so is that essentially kind of what you're trying to create is this ecosystem or environment where it just naturally is helping everyone progress? Yes. Yeah. So it's trying to remove some of that friction. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in our industry, capital is so precious. Mm -hmm. I kind of, you know, as, as hard as it is, um, I the companies that are able to manage through this period are very good businesses, right? They're good op operators because they have to treat every dollar so precious, but you know, there's two functions, there's time and money. And, you know, when your time is spent uh, spinning your wheels, you know, that's just lost opportunity. Um, and that could be costly, right? So there is a, a monetary impact on that as well. And so if we can help remove some of those friction points, that, um, you know, like even just like take, take an example of a tech stack, right? Where you have a lot of the uh, bigger technology companies at this point in our space, um, you know, they're, they're trying to accomplish a lot with what they're doing with their platforms, but they can't do everything and they've got to be focused. What that means is new technologies can come in and be uh, very accretive to these larger tech platforms because then these tech platforms don't have to try to build that, right? They can keep their precious dollars focused. And so when we're talking about the Poseidon ecosystem, if they can see what we're now investing in that are earlier stage companies, um, maybe they will look to just partner right away instead of building any kind of infrastructure, immediately integrate 
and then get that scale capability. Obviously, the new companies love it because their you know their exposure to new business goes up super fast, right? So that is a a, a major friction point re- removed, and so everyone can be focused with their dollars and growing more more quickly because then the big company too, the bigger tech player. Um, that allows them to offer a whole new service potentially to their existing customers. And then that gets them a deeper relationship, a more uh, stable relationship. So there's a lot of really positive uh, uh, potential there. And then certainly it does open up for opportunity for M&A down the road as well. You know, so there's kind of like this natural breeding ground of, you know, getting these things to scale. One of the biggest challenges of our industry, you know, is, is just getting to a certain point where external markets become really interested in them. Um, and again, talking about the tech side of our space, you know, getting the TAMs, a total addressable market size up to a certain mo- uh, point where then private equity from outside or, you know, strategics from outside actually want to participate. Up until this point, they really haven't. Um, that's why all of this has been done via venture capital for the most part. Um, you know, I'm sure you could pull an example or two contrary to that, but by and large, it's just not there yet. And so, but we're getting there. And so, but when you can build these deep, robust platforms, that is really interesting. And so that'll really help our space too. Um, when you think over the next three to five years is as a healthy M&A environment, bringing in liquidity is a natural piece that's really not been present for our space for quite a while. So re-engaging a robust M&A environment, increasing liquidity, allowing investors to get return, and then they can choose to reinvest all very positive for our space. And so if we can help be a part of creating the necessary infrastructure um, to create a more liquid industry, that's a good thing. And when you're doing this and you're creating these these companies, the quantifiable metric is valuation. And so back to that whole point that, that you were making where some of these valuations are insane, are you helping these folks to kind of create a, a normal, stabilized uh, valuation that uh, isn't going to come back, you know, a $420 million valuation isn't going to come back with some lawyers and sue you down the road later. Um, no. Is that what you're helping to do? And what is normal? What's the multiple of, of EBITDA or how are you uh, valuing these companies? How do you, how do you create valuation? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, as I was mentioning before, there are still pockets of frustration, but it certainly helps with the, the broader uh, SaaS industry you know, their multiples have come down massively, right? Just to see what's happened in tech outside of cannabis, Mm. valuations have come down. um, And that really helps. I mean, when it was like a year ago and, you know, people were trading at 40 times sales or 100 times sales, you know, and just, you know, very hard. I was told Uh, 60. When I was in San Francisco recently, somebody told me tech SaaS can still get 60X of EBITDA. And I think that's insane. Like what's what's normal? (laughs) Of of, Of EBITDA, not of sales. Mm-hmm. So a year ago, you were get you could get sixty times sales mm-hmm. or hundred times sales. Mm-hmm. Um, so on an EBITDA basis, you know, there's you got to look at gross margins. You got to look at uh, growth rates um, because you know some of these EBITDA multiples may be very high because there's still a lot of a very aggressive spend, um, but their sales multiple may be much much lower, right? Because it may be just enough to squeeze out some EBITDA, so it creates a very high EBITDA multiple. Um, but if you're like three to four times sales. Um, you know, and, and if your company is growing 40, 50, 60%, um, you know, you don't necessarily, and it's, and it's, it's good growth. I mean, I think that's a big thing that we talk about a lot is, is what is the value of that growth and like, who are the customers? 
you know, are these customers that look good for a pitch deck to get a round raise or are these customers that have, um, that these are long lasting customers that are true businesses, you know, like a lot of our space, a lot of tech companies have throttled back growth meaningfully, um, to get their trajectories out much longer, uh, runways where either they're heading to cash flow positive or cash flow neutral, um, and taking their growth from 60% to 30% to 20%, um, while we're waiting for the operator side of our space is having a lot of churn, right? I mean, if, you know, mentioning before, we, you know, asking about pricing and what that, you know, our decisions of being in Canada or whatever, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of companies uh, going out of business on the plant touching side. If you're mm -hmm. small, uh, undercapitalized, or, you know, had a, you know, didn't really have a really strong uh, footprint, um, you know, and that's happening all over the place, all over the country. Mm -hmm. um, we're seeing this kind of activity happening. And so that does impact technology companies, right? Because if you're, these tech companies were selling to small operators, mm -hmm. they may have a high churn rate. Or if they're concentrating in a certain market where wholesale pricing is collapsing and businesses are going out, they're going to see a lot of churn. So that's not good growth mm -hmm. when we're talking about. So there's there's definitely you know multiple tests we're looking at um, to see wh what it looks like. But I mean, our industry, um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, we like reasonable multiples, but we do comp to external. Uh, but again, that's why it does help to have the external markets being much more favorable. And we also now have public companies, um, you know, SaaS-based companies or tech companies like you have Leafly, you have Weed Maps, you have SpringBig, mm -hmm. you know, they're all in the public domain. And, you know, the idea that the public markets are the ultimate deciders of valuation um, when you have, you know, Leafly and SpringBig trading at, you know, like 1.7 times sales, Weed Maps trading at 1.7 times sales really hard for a tech company to say we're worth 20 times sales mm -hmm. it's like yeah, what happens when you go public i mean the public market will get to the valuation that it ultimately believes because it is the most robust from buyers and sellers and you know the most rigor around it you can certainly say there's some structural dynamics that you know limit the amount of participation in our space but it still is a is a very powerful price discovery tool so that does help that we have public market comps and then usually in a typical venture capital uh, theory, you should be at a liquidity discount to what the public markets are trading at. Mm -hmm. um, again, we look at size, we look at margins, um, you know, we look at the use of funds, you know, we look at what those all mean to see what it could translate into for future enterprise value. Um, uh, you know, when we're thinking about it so that, you know, it's, you're not typically going to be able to only pay two times sales on a private SaaS company, it's going to be more like 10 times, um, especially if it has, you know, that 30% plus growth. Is cultivation the the market opportunity right now? You guys identify attractive opportunities to take advantage of market dislocations. Mm -hmm. Is, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it sounds like cultivation might be that dislocation. Where are you currently seeing dislocations? Yeah. Um, well, it really depends on the state. Mm -hmm. um it really depends on the is it the state or market. is it the region like if you're looking at the west coast is it starting to become more and more dis um uh discounted versus the emerging markets on the east coast are you seeing distressed assets on the yes. west oh yeah major distress but it needs i mean we need a lot of supply to go away in california mm -hmm. there's way too much supply same mm -hmm. thing in oregon same thing in washington just way too much supply so it's uh, yeah i mean the amazing thing about cannabis is it's a pretty simple you know, econ 101, supply demand. Mm -hmm. You know, if demand is not sufficient for the amount of supply, prices go down. 
And, you know, when you look at states like California that have high regulatory costs, even though we got rid of the cultivation tax, um, but we also have a thriving illicit market, um, you know, it's very hard. So, uh, you know, when we're looking at plant touching, we generally actually, uh, like here in California, we look at retail, um, retail and new municipalities. Um, so these are emerging markets. Um, like one of our colleagues, a company we did not invest in, but they got a new store in a new municipality and it's doing 18 million run rate. It's fantastic for mm. one store um, versus if you're in a in a more uh, open market scheme, like, say, here in San Francisco, you know, there's plenty of doors here doing two million a year that'll be gone not too long. You can't make money at two million dollars a year. It's just there's not enough uh, uh, to get through. Uh, you know, you've got to be doing at least five million a year just to be potentially stable. And that's if you have some own, you know, other stores elsewhere you know, in other, in other markets, but we do like retail. We also look at vertical, like we're working on an application, uh, a company that's doing a new application in the Southeast. We're doing another transaction in the South. Um, and so actually there's three deals we're looking at, uh, two we've already done and another one, uh, another couple that we're looking at. So the Southeast to us is actually a very interesting opportunity set. And what we like about it is we have time uh, when you're running private funds um, not our first fund, that's, you know, uh, a hedge fund, but our, our venture capital structures that have years of life to them, you can invest in some of these markets where others might not have that kind of time, that patience. So we can be that capital and build for five, six, seven, eight years um, where others can't. And so that's a very big advantage for us. And the Southeast is kind of that dynamic because of the ownership requirements, um, because of the restrictiveness of their programs are going to be very slow to build. And so for us, that, that does create a dislocation because it's, it's a disincentive for a lot of capital to want to invest there. And for us, it's like, this is great. It's a great place to be investing. Interesting. I, I've seen a lot of cultivation and retail um, dropping in, in their capital raises year to date. And I'm wondering if, if Florida with federal legalization will, will be um, uh, a bad trip for investors. Um just with the humidity and and the the expense, I mean, it might be good to invest short term if you can get in and get out. Um, but I'm I'm wondering if you're seeing average deal size decreasing by approximately half on cultivation and retail, resorting to a large amount of the M and A's that we're seeing in those sectors. Yeah, well, that's a yeah, that's the other piece of the equation is is the exit. Um, mm -hmm. And for retail, if you're in a really good jurisdiction with a really prime location your ability to sell that asset is far greater. And so that's what's super important to us is, is be able to invest, build, and be able to exit. Cultivation is, it's kind of a commodity. You kind of leave that to the big scale. You know, the the big operators um, can generate a lot. And, and, and the other challenge is the big operators are, are learning now um, to not overbuild. You know, these big operators have overbuilt so many times over and over again, and they're finally learning to pull that back. And I'd say like New Jersey is a great example where that market's probably actually going to stay tight for quite a while because people are being so cautious about um, building too much cultivation capacity. You know, it's like, um, you know, it's, it's in some aspects, a big percentage of, of cultivation is a commodity. And, you know, the whole uh, idea of the commodity complex is high prices, bring supply, but look what just happened in this latest round of like the oil uh, complex, how much of the oil complex started drilling when 
oil was like just exploding higher. Mm-hmm. They didn't. What did they do? They paid out huge dividends. They had record profits and they're just sitting on their hands. They're just waiting for it to, you know, come back down. So, you know, it's kind of like our industry too, is like, I feel like the operators, if, if they can manage a tight um, market and they can uh, offer plenty of offerings to their customers, then why build anything more than that? Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be racing to the bottom. You see this, we've seen it over and over and over again, because it is a state by state dynamic here. But like, look at what happened in Arizona, prices down a lot. Look what happened, uh, obviously, California, Colorado, Nevada, uh, Oregon, Washington, uh, all seen prices come down big time. Massachusetts came down. There's too much capacity relative to the demand because the regulations didn't get enough retail open relative to the amount of capacity that got built up. But that that's why I say like the operators, especially the ones east of Mississippi learned, like Massachusetts was a great learning experience mm-hmm. of being very thoughtful about how much capacity you build relative to the to the um, access points so yeah they probably learned that from canada and everyone else's mistakes washington you know everyone's made their mistakes um you guys have learned a lot too you guys just launched an etf an exchange traded fund the poseidon dynamic cannabis exchange traded fund with advisor shares there it is (laughs) yeah um how does that compare to to other etfs you guys aren't the first one there's been etfmg and and mj and during 2020, uh, MJ was negative 54% and PodX was negative 56% uh, during a bull market. So how do you guys, how's your performance compare? I know you haven't been out very long, but um, what are you guys doing differently and, and how's your performance uh, compare? Sure. Uh, so the ETF is, it's a global mandate. We can go anywhere, um, very flexible. It's an active strategy, so it's not like a benchmark. Um, and it's run by us, you know, the, a team that's been investing in cannabis since 2013. So, you know, it's a dedicated team focused on cannabis, focused on opportunities um, uh, anywhere. And so we can be very uh, flexible. The other thing that's really interesting about our ETF is we have this uh, dynamic leverage capability where we can be... Um, unlevered, or we can be all the way up to 1.5 times leverage. Um, and we wanted that flexibility because, you know, as I mentioned earlier, just being dynamic in cannabis, I think is, is very mindful. This year for the first half, we ran at about 122% levered, um, which was kind of like a mid range for what we were trying to do. Um, you know, in Q1, that was, that was okay. Q2, that was pretty tough. Um, you know, in hindsight, you would want no leverage when the market was going to take another massive leg lower. Um, on an unlevered basis, it's or on a leverage adjusted basis. You know, when you look at all the others out there, um, you know, we're it's doing pretty well. Um, I'm I'm pretty happy with it. I mean, especially off the bottom now. I mean, we're you know, it's when the markets are rising, leverage is your friend. And so, you know, from the June 30 to this point, um, you know, we're outperforming everybody by a decent clip. Um, and that's even with, you know, we've been about 113, 114% leveraged since then. And we're just waiting to see a little bit more uh, uh, support in this market uh, before we take leverage back up. We would like to see, we're, you know, right in the throes of earning season right now. We'd like to see that get digested a little bit more. So it kind of feels like there's going to be some negative skew for some of these names um, through this period of time. And we'd like to see the flows pick up. Uh, meaning more dollars coming into the ETFs um, to feel confidence that there's real support behind this. Cause up until this point, it feels like a lot of short covering 
um, with a little bit of uh, individual investor participation, but it's not been a big, a big amount of support from like new institutional commitments. Um, and, and we see that a lot from our conversations with institutional groups. They're just waiting to see some clarity about say like safe banking, um, which up until a couple of weeks ago was a 0% probability of happening in 22 to now it's not a, it's not a 0%, uh, at least in our, our minds, it's, it's, you know, off the map, but it's got some work to do. Um, anyway, so from our ETF perspective, we like that. Um, we have exposure to um, the underlying uh, multi-state operators. We think there's a lot of value in them. Um, we do that via swaps. So very much the same way like MSOS does it. Um, you know, we're, we're, uh, we work with advisor shares where sub-advisor on their platform. Um, so, you know, from our perspective, we kind of see like MSOS is like the index, which it's, you know, it's the beast of our space, right? It's 650 million in assets, even after everything we've gone through, it's truly impressive. Um, and so it's a big strategy and we have the ability of kind of, you know, where this levered, like, uh, you know, as Dan likes to call us, uh, Dan who runs MSOS, we're like the speedboat, you know, so we can, we can move around, we can do a lot of different things, um, because our size allows us that, that freedom to really, drive around quite a bit. Um, and we've tried to do that. So, you know, and, and we're not afraid of, you know, we do work and we'll dig into things and have some different exposures. Um, like none of the other ETFs out there own Ascend Wellness. I don't know why. Um, I think it's a fabulous business, great asset location, great team, um, you know, good balance sheet for a tier two. Um, we own Sundial, which people like throw up on about, you know, but if you actually do the work like our team has done, um, you know, it's a recent addition for us. It's not, you know, it was not, uh, we've not held it since it went down massively um, because it's a really interesting business of what you look at it on some of the parts in a book value analysis basis. You know, you, when you can buy below book value with the kind of cash on their balance sheet, pretty attractive business. So we, you know, again, we're we're just trying to be, thoughtful, being good capital allocators, um, using methodologies that, you know, we've done since day one of Poseidon is just, um, you know, be smart and think about portfolio construction and, and, and build a good, uh, a good strategy. So we think it's, it'll have a lot of value, especially as the market does improve more, um, having that additional leverage, uh, you know, we're just waiting for the, uh, a couple more green shoots and then we can take the leverage up and really generate some, some very attractive returns. All right, Morgan, I'm going to break out the crystal ball here and ask about um, some exits. So obviously with an ETF, a lot of these companies want to become publicly traded and have an exit strategy or, or whatever their exit strategy is, M&A, being bought out by somebody, whatever it is. Um, what happened to to a couple of your your investments? Um, I think you invest, yeah, I definitely know you invested in a headset. I'm wondering what the likely scenario, exit scenario is for headset. And then what happened to Vapex Hale? Yeah, that one, unfortunately, um, you know, was, uh, you have to remember, uh, venture has something like an 80% loss ratio. Um, we've been very fortunate that our loss ratio has been far less than that, but that was one that did uh, go the wayside. Um, Headset's doing great. Headset is a growing mm -hmm. business. It's um, building a very, you know, the, they are a, a very well quoted uh, data provider in the industry, and they're going to be opening up some new state market uh, data uh, later this year, which will be super exciting for them. Um, you know, just love that team. Uh, they've been in it for so long, obviously the build, they built Leafly, um, exited that and then built headset and, you know, continue to build that company. So it still is private. Um, but it's, you know, if you remember also tech 
or private private companies tend to be private for you know they can be private for 10 15 years mm-hmm. um there's a lot of unnecessary um pressure on our space to get to liquidity as fast as we can but you know good private companies are built over years you know you got to go through different cycles and different permutations and you know really find what's resonating and sticking and building and raising and um you know so they're just going along that journey and um you know but you know they're doing they're doing great and smart team and you know been very thoughtful especially through um you know the last couple of years with a, a very tight capital market so they've been very judicious with their capital and um, but in a good position. So excited for those guys. We'll see, you know, it just ties back to my earlier comment about an exit for them is probably still a couple of years out um, because again, we need SaaS TAMs to get big enough that uh, private equity world and the, and the uh, strategics want to come in and participate. Yeah. Headsets, a technology company, great team, uh, great leaders. Um, but Vape Exhale, I've, I've got a Vape Exhale here. It's a great product. Um, I love it. Yeah. Do you think that the the lack of the success in this amazing product that is Vape Exhale, do you think that lack of success was because there's not cafes or consumption spots for people to go to and see this and get FOMO and say, oh, I got to get this? Because I would run around Portland and Seattle and people would hit this and they'd be like, wow, I got to get one of these. But they didn't have, there wasn't an advertising marketing budget or a location for people to see this. So are you thinking that maybe cannabis cafes could be a spot for companies to do more business at yes um is is a short answer to that um if you looked at canopy growth just had their quarter quarterly earnings um pretty rough um regardless of <laughs> stocks up 18 percent today on august 8th um as we're talking about all this but um what is it called bricks uh uh stickle what's the name of the um the parent company that does the volcano uh mm-hmm. Anyway, so they bought that brand and their sales were down huge Mm -hmm. uh, in the quarter. Um, So the whole that whole like device kind of market um, got a little saturated. Right. Puffco came in and sat and they just kind of there was a lot of products. So it was a lot of noise. And I just feel like it it kind of diluted to your point. Cafes are are definitely uh, a great place like the um, Spark, uh, which is a a San Francisco based uh, vertically integrated operator. Um, they used to have retail over by where the Twitter building is, you know, right on Market Street here. Mm-hmm. And they used to sell vape XLs. And they would have even like you could you could go like a lot of Twitter employees would go over there on their lunch break and get a vape XL and sit down and enjoy some cannabis in their lounge before going back to the office. And 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 so Spark was a really good store for vape XL units to sell through for mm-hmm. exactly what you're saying. Um, but as cafes kind of quieted down, especially with the pandemic, um, that definitely seems to have hit, impacted that area, mm-hmm. especially device like that. That is like a connoisseur's device, right? I mean, the the delivery is so superior, but you've got to want to work with it, right? It's it's a little bit more involved. You've got the basket, you got to clean it, you got to do these different things. And, and a lounge is a great place for that because you can mm-hmm. centralize a lot of that and teach. And so people understand how that works. Um, so you are hearing a lot more talk about cafes coming back. I mean, I do think there also is some technological developments that will help with that, where, you know, a lot of consumers would like more of like a, call it like an alcohol experience where it's rapid onset, short impact, rapid offset, 
so you could go about your day and not just be, you know, for a lot of people, you know, might be too, too much of an experience for too long that, you know, they just prefer to do that at home and not, you know, go do that in a, in a cafe. So I do think technology can help with evolving that consumer experience as well. But, uh, but yeah, but I mean that, so I think that that device probably was just too far ahead of its time. And, you know, it definitely was, uh, it's really hard to build hardware in a capital starved environment. You know, it's really hard to launch new products and get it all the way through the tooling and get it initial inventory builds and get it out into the market. It's very tough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I probably got 45 minutes worth of, of more questions for you, but maybe we can follow up. But uh, MJ BizCon, if you're going to be in Vegas uh, next um, next quarter, um, anything else you want to you talk about uh, before we wrap this up? Yeah, I think, you know, just um, cannabis has definitely been on a journey. Um, you know, as I've kind of said a few times today, um, I just think it is helpful for people to put into context that even though we are nine years into this, it is so early. Um, I was just talking with the CFO of one of the largest operators um, this weekend, whom we've known and worked with for years. And we were saying the same thing. I mean, even though they're, they're a multi-billion dollar enterprise at this point, we're still just scratching the surface. There is so much opportunity. Um, and I just, you know, want people to keep their, their, um, you know, their wits about them. You know, there's plenty of information out there at this point. There's plenty of great resources out there. Um, like the talking hedge, you know, great data source for getting news and information and conversations, you know, like get educated, be a part of it. Um, and, you know, don't get too emotional about it. I know it's been a very painful period of time uh, with the with the stocks getting beat up pretty hard, um, but we're just kind of you know I've I've seen some pretty horrible activity like on Twitter and just feel like people are kind of ripping themselves apart and it's not productive. Um, you know, making fun of elected officials might feel good for the moment, but it's not going to do anything, right? It's you know more about you know voting and being a part and trying to educate with positivity. Um, is really how we continue to drive this industry forward. Um, as much as things can seem completely insane <laughs> at certain periods of time, and it's and it's incredibly frustrating. I get all of it, but you know, from our perspective, that's why we try to always talk about things like we do. Uh, Poseidon does. Uh, I have a Twitter Spaces Tuesdays and Thursdays called the Cannabis Closing Bell with Poseidon, and then Patrick and Colin also have a, a venture capital talk on Thursdays. So we're just trying to be sources as well and talking about what we're seeing, what's going on and just trying to uh, help um, because it's just, it's really hard. I mean, information is, is tough out there too, right? It's hard from a media perspective. Um, there's just so many cross currents going on all the time, but um, I, you know, I think from a canvas perspective, it is good to have more of a longer term mindset. Um, we've always had a longer term mindset. It's been tough when we've seen these pockets of like, uh, the hot money come in and, and distorts things, but the hot money then just leaves and it leaves a wake of destruction and we have to start all over again. And here we are is a great reset uh, is how we look at where we are right now in cannabis. So we're very excited about where we are now. Um, definitely helps that prices are not phone going, stock prices are going down every single day like they did for, for months and months. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, from here, we just see a very positive period of time where good companies are scaling, good teams Teams are getting, you know, bolstered with new talent coming in, fresh energy. Um, so we're very excited about it. But you know, we just try to also stay grounded and not also get, you know, on the on the negative side of things, and and just try to help people understand that it's important to to think about that. Mm-hmm. If people want to get some more information and check you guys out, where are you at? Uh, 
you know, Poseidon.partners is our website, um, Twitter, Emily's on Twitter, uh, Tyler, me, uh, the whole team, Patrick, Colin, everybody's out there. So Twitter's a very good place to find us. Um, LinkedIn as well. Um, so we're all out there on, on LinkedIn. So people are, you know, you can find us. Um, if you just look up, uh, if Poseidon.partners is a great website. And then, you know, for ETF matters uh, is, is PSDN is our ticker. Um, so you can just Google PSDN or you can go to advisorshares.com and then go to PSDN from there and see every day our positions are noted. Um, we have weekly leverage that we post on there so you can see how we're leveraged uh, each week. Um, so all that information's there. And yeah, um, thank you for having me. And, and I hope uh, people find this uh, find it helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but I think with that, we're gonna have to rule this one up. So I want to thank my guest, Morgan Paxia, founding partner and chief investor at Poseidon Asset Management. Morgan, thanks again for being with us at The Talking Hedge. Thank you. Appreciate it. I'm Josh Kincaid. This is The Talking Hedge. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe, or don't, and I'm out. Don't forget to smash that like button on your way out and check out these other videos that we've got. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Joyce Gerber, the creator and host of the award-winning podcast, The Canna Mom Show. And we are on a mission to enhance the impact women have on this industry as business professionals, healthcare providers, policy advocates, caregivers, moms, by sharing and preserving their stories of love and kindness, wisdom, and hope. I am so grateful to have found my tribe of Canna podcasters right here on PodConX and look forward to our work of crushing the stigma around cannabis and caregivers and building this new industry together.